everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth bringing you quality clothing and packs at a price you deserve. Check them out at Huntworth.com. So this podcast uh, is with Huntworth. Uh, Tracy Breen is the marketing guy behind uh, everything that uh, Huntworth does. And uh, we'll get into everything about Huntworth. So I'll leave that out of the intro kind of um, today. But we're we're coming up on the end of the year, so this is the last chance to get in for this quarter's Patreon uh, giveaway. Uh, Huntworth is giving away their Fairbanks uh, cold weather bibs and jacket and great gear, keep you warm. You'll hear about you know everything about Huntworth on this uh, this podcast towards the end. Uh, not a Huntworth heavy podcast as far as uh hard sell or anything like that uh, just kind of get an idea of uh you know uh, who's out there putting their name out there and uh, what it's all about so uh, if you're interested in uh helping us out you know if you like listening to the podcast you want to support us uh you're thinking about you know how can uh, how can we uh, do more to to help to get better content to do all this stuff uh check out patreon.com um, go to Bowhunter Chronicles podcast, and for like seventeen cents a day, you know you can help us out tremendously, and uh, you'll be in for the giveaways. Uh, we send out shirts, swag, all that stuff, and um, you know we've we've got you know tons and tons of different saddles and other pieces of gear uh, that just kind of sits around all year round. When you know you can only hunt out of you know so much stuff, so uh, the Patreons are the first ones to call us up and say, "Hey, can I try this?" and, and you know, we got a program where we'll send it out to you. Uh, you can hunt out of it, try it, try all this stuff uh, firsthand before you buy it. And, you know, we got our community with the Marco Polo group and uh, had our great Patreon hunt. And if you want to be involved in any of that stuff, um, you know, check it out. Go there. And uh, for all of our other sponsors, you know, we don't work with anybody that doesn't want to give back to uh, you know, the people that support us and ultimately the end user of the podcast, the listeners. Um, Spartan Forge has just released a new update with uh, their topo lines that you can change 3D. You can see everything. It's got shaded topo so you can see slopes, um, all of that stuff. Uh, SpartanForge.ai, it's artificial intelligence for the deer woods. And I feel like all of that. Artificial intelligence, deer movement, uh, deer prediction, all that stuff is incredible technology, but their mapping is kind of overshadowing that with uh, the best maps in the business, hands down. You can use code BO100 to save 25% on that, but they give away one of their year memberships um, every quarter uh, to someone. Um, and then Lucky Buck. You know, listen to the intro in the last podcast. We killed more racked bucks on our property in the UP this year. Uh, my family did than we have probably in two decades. Um, you know, too soon uh, to to say that it was from the lucky buck just from this year, uh, perhaps. But uh, it it definitely didn't hurt. And lucky buck gives away one of their buckets of mineral if you can use it in your state, or they've got food plot seed um, as well. And then our friends at Zinger Fletchings, they just say, hey, give some of these out. Um, So uh, quarterly, uh, we draw a name, and uh, they give away one of their test packs. Uh, You tell them what arrows. uh, You don't got to fletch them. They're just compression fit. Uh, Fletchings are 3D printed. uh, Incredible stuff. Check them out. Um, But 
yeah, so this podcast with uh, Tracy Breen talks about like heat boost, what it is, um, how it came to be, but some really great information about the outdoor industry, how to get into it, uh, his path and uh, direction and all that. Um, so I think you guys are going to be really uh, surprised by this episode. It's not, like I say, it's not a hard sell. I think you're really going to enjoy it. As always, thanks for listening. Hey everybody, Adam back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. And uh, today we're going to be talking, you know, you, you've seen us, we're sponsored by Huntworth. And uh, the the way that that all came about was kind of uh, through uh, a buddy of mine, Craig, and then this man right here, Tracy Bree. And uh, he says, you know, he's been on a bunch of podcasts here and he's the self-proclaimed poster boy for this uh, Huntworth <laughs> heat boost. And... Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to get into some of that, but, um, you know, Tracy's done a lot of other things in the outdoor industry, been doing it for a long time. Um, and it's nice to deal with someone who, um, has hunted, who does have a passion for this stuff and isn't just a pencil pusher. Who's like, you know, well, you know, our metrics on social media are, you know, this, and we'd really like yeah. you to do, do this. Uh, yeah. so, um, but how are you doing tonight, Tracy? Good, good. I mean, you know, hunting season's winding down and Christmas is coming, so it's it's nice to be able to take a little bit of a breather uh, before ETA show and that kind of thing. Winding down, we've still got all the way until January 1st. You hardcore guys do, but, uh, you know, us, you know, I, I tell this to a lot of people, when you make a living in the hunting industry, a lot of times uh, when your hobby becomes work, it does take a little bit of the shine off it, you know, and I've I've been blessed to hunt all over. And I'm at a point in my life now where I'm kind of getting my kids into it. And, and I just don't have the drive to push like I once did, you know, to be out there freezing my butt off. I'll let you guys do that. So uh, from, from that side of it, like, how did you grow up hunting and then make, I mean, cause it, it ends up always, you know, the same story, you know, guys grow up hunting, they love the industry, they get into it and then they don't hunt as much as they wanted to, or they, you know, all that stuff or they become burn out but like when you grew up what was it like um as far as like your hunting upbringing uh my dad was a full-time taxidermist right here in west michigan um and so i grew up with a dad who was mountain you know 100 plus deer heads a year and and was a full-time trapper in the late 70s early 80s so pretty hardcore i mean i can remember a, a fall and winter that he and his trapping partner put 2,000 muskrats uh, on stretchers, you know, and, and bought my mom a brand new car with fur money. If that tells you, you know, back then, it, I mean, you had to be hardcore to do that. So that was my upbringing. And he was an avid reader of hunting magazines. So from the time I was 10 or 12 years old, I was reading all those magazines. And, and my goal was to be a an outdoor writer. And I kind of had tunnel vision. Uh, and that's the the dream I chased. And I was able to achieve that, you know, just really because I did have tunnel vision. So from the early magazines and then looking at all of the, the animals that would come through the shop, like today's ability with social media to see, to get in front of all these, these huge deer, um, and, and, you know, we mostly focus on deer. That's, that's kind of the, yeah. the, I don't know, the, the, the goal, right. Like, you know, where we yeah. live. Um, it, what was it like as a kid? I mean, now you see these deer and everything is, 
is inches and it's all like uh, Boone and Crockett, Pope and Young. Now it's, you know, age class or should have given him a, a, another year. Like seeing that from that perspective as a kid, watching him come in, what were the conversations around the shop with your dad and his buddies and all that? You know, one thing that's uh, strikingly different is, uh, and I see jaws drop when I tell this story, especially if I'm speaking in front of a large crowd. But if if my dad mounted 150 deer heads, you know, when I was a kid, a year, a hundred of those probably barely broke a hundred inches. Okay, I mean, we're talking West Michigan in the 80s and 90s, and if it was a two and a half year old eight point, two and a half year old ten point, he was going on the wall. You know, and and if I'm speaking in Illinois or Iowa or even Wisconsin, any of those states, people are just blown away that, you know, in in those areas, especially now, people don't even do a euro of those deer, right? I mean, they're just like, ah, whatever, throw it in the box behind the freezer, you know what I mean? But when I was a kid, a two and a half year old, you know, eight point, ten point, I mean, he was something. And that's that's what was getting mounted. There was no one shaming you for it either, right? There was no social media. You know, no one was judging you for what you decided to shoot. Yeah, it's it's one of those things, you know, that I I, I kind of miss, and and when I see it, even now today, they're old, but like the Muskegon Bowman's Club still has, you know, pictures, you know, whatever they were, four by sixes or whatever, you know, the pictures that you would get developed or Polaroids that say like, you know, Bob Johnson, 1997, eight, yeah. you know, Hesperia sports shop still has them on there and they've got yeah. fish up yeah. there. And, you know, that was kind of the, the measuring stick at the time. Right. I mean, yep. And then, you know, I think trail cameras changed that people being more selective changed that. Um, let's face it. Would most of us shoot, still shoot a two and a half year old if, if we weren't worried about what our buddy was going to say or what they would say on social media, a lot of us would, you know, um, but, but times have changed. I don't know if it's better or it's worse. You know, a client of mine that you've been introduced to John Schaefer, Schaefer archery, he owns a pro shop in Minneapolis. And one thing he said to me that I, I know has changed big time is here. He's a pro archer. He's won lots of tournaments, probably one of the uh, most knowledgeable archery engineers in the industry. And he says to me, you know, when I was growing up shooting bows, I mean, every deer hunt become a squirrel hunt if a squirrel walked in front of me and every every deer hunt become a grouse hunt if a grouse walked in front of me and, and so on, right? You just killed whatever. And I think that made for a better bow hunter. And now we just hold out and hold out and hold out. I see it with my own kid and his friends who are bow hunters. You know what I mean? They just hold out and hold out and hold out. And as a result, they're 17, 18, 20 years old, and they've killed, you know, two or three things with a bow. Some of them not at all. Oh, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the big one, you know. Just go kill stuff. You know what I mean? Just go kill stuff. And, and there is fun in, in shooting squirrels and things. You maybe have heard of Zawicki broadheads. Mm -hmm. um, I interviewed the owner of Zawicki one time for a magazine article, and he was just telling me, you know, how much fun it was just go shoot rabbits and squirrels with a bow, you know, when he was a younger guy. And we've kind of lost that now. And I think we've lost some of the fun that goes with that. And every time you kill one of those animals, your confidence is increasing some. So when you do get a shot at that big buck, that's what I always tell my son about all of his buddies. Oh, we're not going to shoot that doe or we're not going to shoot that young buck. 
Well, when you finally do draw down on the supposed giant in your neck of the woods, if you don't have any experience to draw from, it's going to be harder to make that shot. Oh, yeah. I'm dealing with that with the longbow right now. It's like I can't, you know, I can get the deer within spitting distance, but man, getting drawn is just is just really something. Well, and, and you're doing it from the ground too. That's harder. I've done that a lot, hunt from the ground with a bow and that's hard. That's hard. Well, and that's the thing is I've never killed one from the ground with a bow. And okay. I'm, I figure, you know, why not kill two birds with one stone and, and do it this way? And I, <laughs> I, I'm having a blast. And I I think it's it's reverted back to that. Like I was, I was talking to somebody about that today. But it's like it's like being a kid. You know, it, it, it goes back to like everything is a target animal i mean like it doesn't matter what size the deer walks out because i've never killed one before so it's like that's it's going to be an accomplishment for me and i'm super excited um to do it and i don't really care what anybody else thinks you know yeah that, that's i tell my son is 16 he's killed i don't know 12 or 13 deer with a gun you know and i still say to him if a deer walks out and you want to shoot it shoot it you know, I'm, I'm alongside for every one of those hunts and I tell them, I don't, you know, I don't care if it's a four point, a button buck, an old doe. If you want to kill it, kill it. The day will come where you want to be a trophy hunter. You're 16. If you want to kill it, kill it. You know, and that's, how, and, and whether you're 16 or 30, if a fawn walks out in front of you tomorrow and it's 10 yards away and you get that bow drawn back, kill that sucker. That's, how, that's how I feel. Oh, that's, you know, and, and uh, and I don't mind saying it. If it's a fawn, who cares? If you pull it off, give them the broadhead. You know? <laughs> so, you know, growing up in that environment with, you know, even the two and a half year old bucks or, you know, whatever coming through the shop. And, you know, we've got buddies that are uh, taxidermists and it's it's a year round thing and it just doesn't stop you know like you're tanning hides you're fleshing out stuff and then if you do fish or birds or anything else um you know uh, uh, did your dad still find time to hunt deer did he go out and then then my dad yeah he was he was a killer um i mean he hunted in alaska he's killed a moose with a bow caribou with a bow elk with a bow uh lots and lots of whitetails um that's why he chose taxidermy was so he could make a living you know doing what he wanted to do and hunting hard um now once september was gone you know he he never traveled for whitetails because you know once october first come around you're you're tied to the shop so he would usually go on you know a moose hunt in alaska that's that's september elk hunting out west that's september but then once october come he couldn't get away but uh he hunted whitetails close to home and and hunted hard. And then, so for you, like growing up as a kid, uh, we're, I think you're a little bit older than I am, but it's kind of like the yeah, same. 44. Yeah. Same, same era with, uh, you know, the bow hunting equipment and even the bow hunting culture and, or uh, lack thereof. Um, and not that there wasn't culture, but it just wasn't nearly as popular as it is right now. Um, you know, when you first started bow hunting, what was that like? Ah, uh, man. Um, single pin, right? Single pin, cobra sight, uh, you know, flipper rest, quickie quiver. You know, there might have been, with everything I had, you know, there might have been 200 bucks there, right? 
an old bear bow, just wheel bow. Um, and I didn't have many friends that bow hunted either, right? There was kids at school that hunted, but there wasn't many that bow hunted. So it certainly was different. Um, you know, and all data says we're declining in general, but you wouldn't know that by looking at social media and other places, you would think everybody's a bow hunter. Um, but social media has kind of caused that to make it, you know, the cool kid sport today, which I guess I'm fine with. I make a living off of it. I've certainly fanned the flame over the years, but it is a lot different. You know, there, there wasn't a lot of, uh, bow hunters, certainly when I was a kid, as many as it seems like there is now. In that <laughs> double-edged sword, right? Even in what we're mm. talking about in terms of um, deer shaming and inches yeah. and, you know, kind of taking the fun out of that. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, What's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Uh, do you feel like you're part of that because of like the marketing and the way that. Oh, absolutely. To, and so yeah, how does I that mean, make it feel internally? Like, um, I mean, if there's one thing I'm pretty good at, it's marketing. You know what I mean? I, I know I've been with a lot of big brands over the years. I've launched a lot of brands. Um, and so I've, I've watched them grow and become who they are. And absolutely you have to, you know, back when magazine ads were king, I mean, unfortunately, you know, we didn't want to show a grip and grin of a guy with that little four point or whatever that is on the wall behind you, five point or whatever. I mean, that wasn't going to sell bows, right? But a 150, that's how it's changed. Like a 150 was the standard, right? Like magazine ads were full of 150, 160 inch bucks. And that was the standard. And, and a lot of outdoor writers made their living on that class of buck. And then People come along, start buying private land, and then it's 160, 170, 180. Now, you know, we're over 200 inches all the time. I mean, they're everywhere, you know. But I absolutely, you know, fan the flame and help push that. And, you know, back when I was writing hundreds of articles a year, I was writing for North American Whitetail all the time. And 
telling the story of all the guys who were shooting the 200 inch deer. So it's a blessing and a curse for sure. And so from the, the writing side of it, like how did you end up going down that road or like make that your, your goal in life? Like, I mean, you know, you see the career fair, you, it would be, be very easy for you to be like, okay, well, I'm going to do what my dad does. I'm going to do taxidermy. You know, I'm sure you could have made a whole bunch of money at the shop and probably did, you know, here, flesh out these or stretch these out or. Well, you know, unfortunately <laughs> I have cerebral palsy. So that dictated that taxidermy wasn't going to be a career I could take because um, I can skin critters out and I grew up trapping and I had a trap line flushing and putting them on stretchers and that fine motor control needed with your hands, you know, splitting the lips and all those kind of things that you're doing in taxidermy. I can't do those. Um, and so that was just off the table, you know, right away. There was just no way I was ever going to be able to do that. And so from the time I was probably, you know, 10 or 12 when I started thinking about being a writer. But by the time I was 16 or 17, I was I was laser focused. And I and I talked to you about this before. I figured out what a query letter is. And a query letter is when you pitch a story idea to an editor and say, you know, I want to write an article on A, B and C and, and I'll provide the photos. And here's going to be the bullet points of what we talk about. And I mean, I was a teenager. I started sending those things out. And by the time I was in my early 20s, I was being published in some regional publications. And then pretty quickly, I was in, you know, all the major publications in America. Pretty much every last one that's out there, I've been in at some point or another. And so what doors did that open up for you, like from writing to to marketing? I mean, do you have a formal background in marketing at all? No, no. And it's interesting, you know, no, no one ever asked me that either, but I guess, I guess my resume is long enough now and I've been at it long enough. You know, I was, I'm 44 and I started this journey basically when I was 19, 20 years old, it's all I've done. Um, but how it worked was when, when you're writing, you know, eventually you rub shoulders with companies, especially if you're a prolific writer and you're being published in you know, Peterson Bowhunting and North American Whitetail and all those big publications, pretty soon manufacturers want to give you their widget to test out and write about. And and that put me in contact with some of the manufacturers. And then one of the, one of the knacks I have, um, I kind of have a business mind, you know, so there's two or three trade publications in this industry, in the archery industry that really focus on how to help manufacturers and pro shops make more money. And I would write a lot of articles for those publications where I would interview CEOs and tell their story of success. And that really opened doors, you know, pretty early on. I mean, I was working with Matthews. I was, I don't know, 26, 28, something like that when I started working for Matthews Archery and got to know the owner of Matthews Archery really well. And we're pretty good friends to this day. Uh, I talk to him periodically. I still write about him from time to time. Joel Maxfield from Matthews, who Matthews just did a film on, maybe you saw that online. He completed his super slam. So you start hobnobbing with those kind of people and it, and it does open a lot of doors. And pretty soon, you know, I was writing press releases for Matthews Archery and, and a lot of the bigger companies out there I've worked with Carbon Express, a lot of Michigan companies, Carbon Express used to be a Michigan company. There's a lot of companies here in Michigan that I've worked with over the years and just branched out from there. So, Early on in doing that with the, I mean, you see both from a, a marketing side and then from like a, 
getting out there and using the gear side, right? How, I mean, rabid people are for, you know, the new Matthews bow that came out, the new Hoyt, you know, like, you know, bows used to be launched at ATA. Now they're launched, you know, our bow season isn't even over yet. And already next year's bow is, is out. That's a mistake. That's a mistake in my opinion, but with it, we don't need to, you know, there's a lot of squabbling within the industry. Like, why do we do that? You know, like, um, 20 years ago it was at ATA. And so there was a lot of buzz leading up to ATA. Hey, let's go check out these new bows, you know, and, and slowly, but surely, one company wanted to beat their competitor, right? Well, we'll launch ours on December 1st and ours will be November 1st. And now, I mean, some of the smaller players, you know, they're introducing bows in October, you know, it's kind of, kind of crazy how that's happened. But from a, from like a marketing standpoint, like for guys like your, your son's friends or guys that are just getting into archery and stuff, it almost seems like a toxic environment because it's like, you need this new stuff, this new bow, this new everything. And it's like, you know, you were killing deer with $200 worth of equipment and the the bow shot 180 feet per second with a maybe straight aluminum arrow, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we had arrow straighteners. We would straighten them back out and shoot them again, right? I right. mean, yeah, I, I say that to my son's friends. Uh, there's a couple in particular uh, that I talk to and hang out with. And I say, you're a marketer's dream. You're a marketer's dream because they do believe, you know, they got to have a super heavy arrow and, and they got to have all the latest things. And it's because they're watching YouTubers and, and believing that marketing. But I think the main difference in shooting all these bows is like, the vibration. I think that's come oh, a yeah. long ways, but the rest of it, I mean, is kind of comes down to personal preference, whether it's the grip or the draw cycle or, you know, I, I think I like a lot of the tuning stuff that they've done. And, mm-hmm. uh, like you talk about Matthews and like being able to switch the mods over instead of having to change limbs and, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's huge for, for guys like John who want to, you know, shoot, turkeys with a 60 pound bow and shoot elk with an 80 pound bow and not have to swap over limbs. Like that's great. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, there's been a lot of little cool things, but I mean, from like a feet per second or even here's something people don't think about from a vibration standpoint that, that often is um, interesting to me to observe. If you took a brand new bow out of the box from 10 years ago, right now, it's brand new, hasn't been shot. And you shoot that at 20 yards into a morale target, whatever. And then you go and grab today's brand new bow and you shoot it side by side, brand new. You probably wouldn't feel an enormous amount of difference. But what happens is you shoot a bow for a few years and it gets used, right? I mean, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of arrows. And then you go shoot the new bow and you're like, oh, man, there's this thing is perfect in my hand. Well, it's because it's brand new. You know, because if you look at the science and the data out there, yes, they are able to tweak some vibration and things. But from talking to engineers behind closed doors and things like that, I mean, there there's just when it comes to dynamic efficiency and the efficiencies of the bows, not not a lot has changed. I mean, we've just reached a point. I would say there was the biggest leap from like 1990 to 2005, 2008, and then, you know. It's just like gas mileage in a in a gas car. There's only so much we can do, right? 
<laughs> you don't have a car, even though gas is four bucks a gallon. We've yet to put a car in the road that's, you know, going going 100 miles, you know, on a gallon of gas, no matter what we do. If you eliminate the electric motor and you were still using a gas motor, there's not a whole lot of not a whole lot of places we can go. And so what happens is, and this is where the marketing guy wins and the company wins, is it really becomes a branding war. You know, has much changed in a Harley Davidson in the last 20, 30, 40 years? Not a whole lot, right? But they're the kings of branding motorcycles and marketing motorcycles. So uh, I I guess down the marketing rabbit, rabbit hole, right? How does that... Um, <laughs> how does one win that game? Like uh, you and I have had this conversation and you know, you're like, when you go into a shop, like everybody wants to shoot the new Matthews, like Matthews is King because of the branding or, Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, And then the flip side of that, and it's probably like what you, um, in your job, in your field, however you uh, approach it is how do you, become immune to that or like who is the guy that you're trying to convert and and how do you not look at you know the quote-unquote cool factor and look at like stick to your guns as far as like what what you're looking for i think the cool factor wins out in most things and technology or something being better unfortunately is second or third right now when you have all the above the reason Matthews won the branding war, okay, Matthews was started in 1992, and we can learn a lot about branding and marketing in the outdoor industry just hearing their story. Matt McPherson came up with the solo cam, okay, and so that was a brand new technology, but then he put really cool marketing and branding behind it. When you have an amazing product and amazing marketing, you climb to the top really, really fast, typically, but there's a lot of products out there that, once again, lipstick on a pig but they have really, really good branding, okay? And, and and they're really good at telling a story about a product in the way they go. And it's not even a new technology. We can say that with saddles right now, right? Saddles, John Eberhardt, the first time I ever interviewed John Eberhardt was probably, you know, 20 years ago. Now, all of a sudden, saddles have become this new thing, but they've been around forever. So I think because of social media, branding and marketing and being a cool kid has become more important. And having an awesome product in a lot of ways isn't as important as it once was. So, uh, I don't know if that answers anything you were asking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's the first part of the question. But the second part of the question as a consumer or like uh, for yourself, right? Who I'm, I'm hard to sell something to, I'll tell you that. And I say that to my kids. Like, my son is a – have you ever heard of Guggen Bates? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Guggen is a fishing lure, and and they're what all the cool kids want. And I'll look at those things when I'm fishing with him, and I'm like, yeah, this isn't a whole lot different than a Rapala or a Bep Spitter or whatever, right? But that's what the cool kids want, and that's what they did. They don't have any amazing technology. They have really good branding and a bunch of cool YouTubers. And so how do you – I guess you're the person that you need to sell, right? So how do you wade through all the BS to get to, like, the – the best product when I'm researching things. Yeah. Or like when you, when you're looking at something or what would you say to like, so there's a lot of people who are like, okay, well I need, but you know, there's been products launched that, you know, uh, tether just has a new pack coming out. Uh, 
you know, they just launched some new sticks. There's the new beast platform. There's all these things. And there's definitely their tribes, right? So they're like, mm-hmm. you know, whatever they put out, they're going to buy. And then you get kind of the undertow effect where everything's moving towards that way. And you're like, okay, well I have to go with the, with the flow. Right. Um, but how do you look and say, well, this is what I need and this is what I want. This is the best, but this is what everything is. I, I'm probably not the, the right guy for this because I'm, I'm a pretty frugal person. Right. I mean, I just, um, so I go for what the best deal is. I would be a Huntworth customer. I'll say that. If I didn't work for Huntworth, I would be a Huntworth customer. If I wasn't in the outdoor industry, I would be a Huntworth customer because I would go look at a $500 Sitka coat and I would rub it and feel it and put it on. And then I'd go try a Huntworth coat and go, man, it doesn't doesn't seem to be a whole lot of difference here for half the price, you know. Um, but I'm I'm the oddball, right? I'm a Dave Ramsey kind of guy. Most people are. They want to fit in and they and they want the latest and greatest. And that that is how marketing and branding works. You know, um, someone once told me the difference between marketing and branding is when you're branding properly, your product is so cool. People just seek it out. Marketing is me telling you, you need this. And here's why. When you're the cool kid brand, people just want it. Can you tell me why a Yeti cooler is better? Why are you willing to pay literally three to four times through that Yeti name? It's because they've done an insane job of branding a product, right? They don't even tell you 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 need it. They just tell a story, and that story sells it. Yeah. I mean, you look at the the $10 tumbler and then the $30 one that has the embossed Yeti on it now, you know. And you know, so here's when you know they've done an amazing job. You know, as a consumer, that the Walmart brand one is probably just as good. In fact, there's plenty of independent tests that show that, right? We put ice in both and we wait and, and you know, the Yeti's no better, um, but we just want to be part of the tribe, right? And, and it says something about us when I'm I'm leaving the boat launch and, and there's a Yeti cooler strapped to the back of my boat. It, it means I'm legit. I'm serious, you know? And I think that's what a lot of this boils down to is we want our friends and those around us to think we're hardcore. Hardcore is more important now than it ever was, right? That you want your friends to think, oh man, that Adam guy, I mean, man, he's got he's got the stuff. He's for real. Okay. And uh I'm drawn to that old geezer man who's got the, you know, PSE from 1982 and he's still killing stuff with it. That's the story I want to tell. But that's not that's not who we are as Americans. We want the shiny new toy. One, it's funny because, you know, that we are that guy. You know, my friend, he's on his way to Missouri right now. And uh, he, I got him uh, one of the saddle setups that I have. And he's been out playing with it in a tree and all this stuff. And he ordered a new camera arm and he uh, had some stuff 3D printed up and he's, got all this stuff and he's like, I'm a saddle hunter now. And I'm like, have you hunted in it? He's like, not yet. But he's like, I need to buy this and I need to buy this. And I said, Oh, you're totally got, a saddle hunter. You're a hundred percent fourth arrow camera arm. <laughs> got all the stuff. Yeah. I said, You're totally yeah. a saddle hunter because you've bought all the stuff. You're already buying more stuff and you've never hunted out of it yet. And it's like that 
it, now is that marketing or branding? Like, what is that? Well, I would say it started as marketing and certainly tethered and some of those companies have done a great job of branding uh, hats off to them. You know, like when I interviewed John Eberhardt for magazine articles, he was the only dude using a saddle. And as a marketing and branding guy, I say to myself, doggone it, how did I miss that opportunity? Because we were we were talking about the advantages of saddle hunting, you know, and and he would talk about coming over to my house and maybe showing me someday. And and that ship has sailed and now there's a bunch of players in it and hats off to him. But it obviously started by marketing to tell people why they needed to try a saddle. And then branding took over and and the cool kids are now, you know, just following following whatever the brand says for sure. And that stuff's overpriced, obviously, a lot of it too, right? And that's part of the branding. Well, it uh there's there's so many there's so many narratives there that's that's hard to wade through, you know, because there's the made in the USA side, there's the these guys started it. There's, uh, there's, I guess there's endless things that people who are behind these brands can complain about. And they've kind of all landed around the same price point. And I, I don't know if you and I've had this conversation about bows, but it seems like that's what's happened with bows. The, the prices are insane. But even if you want to make, I take bear archery, for example, like they make some great bows for mm-hmm. peanuts. I mean, you can kill deer with, uh, you can buy a brand new bow. 399. Off yeah. 399. Yeah. Yep. And even if they had a flagship bow, like if their top end bow was $700, which it probably easily could be, people would just gloss over it because it wasn't over a thousand dollars. Like, because that's what a premium bow was supposed to cost, I feel like. And now they're, you know, damn near $200 or two grand. I mean, like, yeah. It, and so, like, how does that play into, like, the, what you do, right? Well, I mean, when, so when Huntworth, I mean, we can use Huntworth as an example here. When Huntworth hired me, you know, Neil, the owner of Huntworth, said, you know, we want to be the Chevy and the Ford of hunting close. And that's absolutely an obstacle we've had to overcome because when someone's wearing a Sitka coat that costs 500 or a Kuyu coat that costs 500 and, and they're holding on to a Huntworth coat in their mind, they're like, there's no way this can be anywhere close to the Sitka coat at $249. And so that is a big obstacle you have to overcome is to convince the consumer that you're right. It's not a $500 coat and it doesn't have all the features of a $500 coat, but it's got three quarters of them. Right. And it's the same thing in the, in the bow world. I think, you know, a lot of the bows that are $599, $699, they have most of the bells and whistles, but not all of them. But so many consumers like, oh, there's no way this can be as good. Okay. When I walk into Starbucks and pay five bucks for a cup of coffee, it's not really that much better than McDonald's, right? McDonald's is 99 cents, but I'm convinced myself, you know, I want that high end, that high end brand. And um, I have a tendency as a consumer because I spend so much money on marketing um, to kind of look for that McDonald's cup of coffee that's almost as good. Even though I have worked with powerhouse brands like Matthews, you know what I mean? So I, I absolutely know what it takes and what is needed to push those big brands. But a lot of that is branding. The higher end brands spend a lot more money on marketing and branding 
So their product is going to cost more. You're paying for it at the end of the day. So like switching over to Huntworth a little bit, like for you, I mean, you just said it and it seems like a really odd pitch that almost is good. You know what I mean? Like that's, that, that seems like the last thing you'd want to hang your hat on would be like, yeah, well, we're we're almost as good. Right. So how, how, from, from your perspective in like dealing with say, uh, compare and contrasting, like working with Matthews or marketing for Matthews or, you know, dealing with a company that is at the pinnacle of the industry or like one of the major players. Right. And then saying, okay, well, Huntworth, yeah, we're almost as good. Like what are the differences in, in like your mindset? And then from a consumer side of it, overcoming that, I don't know, fear of missing out from the cool kids side. Yeah. Matthews is absolutely trying to be the cool kid. Now, I don't I don't work with Matthews super closely anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I talk to Matt McPherson quite a bit still. Um, but but obviously they're still going after the cool kid crowd. And Huntworth is going after a guy who's like, hey man, I'm a weekend warrior. Uh maybe I'm hard a little more hardcore as I get more into this, but I absolutely don't want to spend a paycheck on a set of clothing, you know. And really one of the guys who coined the phrase, you know, all not, we won't say almost as good, but it was a guy, Average Jack Archery, who's a YouTuber. And I forget what he said. He actually, he's a teacher and he used a percentage, right? It's like 70% or 75% of the quality for half the price is what he said, something like that. And I think every consumer knows when they spend half as much on something, they are giving up something. But how much are you giving up versus how much time you spend in the woods, Right. Should you wear Sitka clothing or Kuyu on a, a sheep hunt in Alaska when you're going for doll sheep? Is there some advantages to that over Huntworth? Absolutely. But most of us aren't going on doll sheep hunts. We're climbing into a tree stand and Huntworth is going to blow your mind what you're getting for the price and the quality. I remember the first time I told you about it. And you're kind of one of the cool kids, right? The first time I told you, I could tell you're a little standoffish about it like everyone is. and then. You know, 30 days later, when you've tested out, you're like, yeah, I can see how this is going to stand up to 99% of what I do. And it is half the price, you know, so um, I I don't need to be shy about saying, yeah, it's it's not the highest end clothing out there, um, but it's right up there for half the money. Like I've yet to rip, you know what I mean? Like I've I've had their clothes for six years. Like there's not a pair of pants I own of theirs that I've ripped a big old hole in and you know, like, oh man, the quality on this is bad or whatever, you know, it just, it hasn't happened. Those, the, the Durham pants, the, like the, I don't know, like the slacks, they feel, they feel like if you went to, and this is not a knock on the Hudworth clothing, but I'm just giving you like what these pants feel like when you put them on, when you, it's like, if I went, and found like an old leisure suit in uh, Goodwill or something. That old, like stretchy, kind of thicker polyester pant material. Like I put them on and I'm like, like I was going to church in like 1987. You know, like those are like the pants. 
And I've worn those through the all, every single briar in Ohio. Like I've taken thorns out of my knees and my hands and everything. But you're right. They haven't ripped one bit. I've destroyed, you know, I like the, the Wrangler pants from, uh, like Walmart or whatever. Yeah. And those just get shredded in the briars. Like my first light pants are shredded big holes in them. And those Huntworth pants, like I was like, well, we're going to test these same thing. Like when you, I told you, I'm like, I want to try out the rain gear and you and Karen, who's one of the other owners, you're like, well, our, our, our rain gear, isn't that great? Like it's not, you know, don't get your it's hopes not up. Sheep hunting. Yeah. It's not sheep hunting rain gear. Don't, yeah. don't get your don't get your hopes up. Like it's just and I wore them through them same briars and didn't rip them. The material is quiet enough to hunt in. And it's like I mean I, I the next time I saw you, I'm like, I don't know what you guys are talking about with this rain gear, because this does everything that I need it to do. Um and like I I wore it in a terrible environment on purpose, you know. Um but, but that, that that said, is there a Sitka rain jacket that probably is more breathable or whatever? Yeah, probably. But that's where you got to ask yourself as the average bow hunter, do I need that? And we often overbuy. You know what I mean? As a consumer, we overbuy. And, and there might be a couple trade-offs. But for, you know, 95 out of 100 bow hunters, I feel like when they put on Huntworth, they're going to have an aha moment is what I call it. And and Neil has always said to me, I want to be the Chevy in the Ford. I want to be the Chevy in the Ford. And, and that's really what we're trying to accomplish. And, and I feel like we have accomplished it. I've been with them now five or six years and and their branding and marketing and who everyone who knows who they are. There's a lot more people, a lot more consumers know who they are. And, um, you know, the, the quality is there. And now we're bringing the branding and the marketing up to match that. Well, and that's one of the things I had on my list here was – like who is Huntworth's avatar customer? Like who are, who should be buying Huntworth gear? Well, I, I would say, you know, I'm not trying to give away the secret. We don't want to give away the secret sauce, right? You know, Sitka might be listening, <laughs> um, but, but I'll say this. Um, the average guys who we were going after when they first hired me, they said, you know, once again, to repeat what Neil said, I want to be the Chevy of hunting clothing. Um, but as we've went, we've, we've tried to elevate even more. And I think one of the things that makes Huntworth different than a lot of the other brands is guys like you. And I, and I know that you'll back me up when I say this guys like you who are on our team will have an annual meeting or multiple meetings a year with Karen and say, you know what? I like that pair of pants, but it'd be really cool if you did this. And over the course of the last five years, the more and more people that we've hired to be influencers or pro staffers or TV show hosts, guys, you know, they're giving us their input. And we've really changed the clothing line and elevated the clothing line to a level that it never was before. And so when they first hired me, I feel like we were absolutely just going after Lunch Bucket Joe. But now we're still going after Lunch Bucket Joe, but there's a lot of serious guys taking Huntworth on, you know, elk hunts for three weeks. And and Nick Hoffman from Nick's Wild Ride, who we could argue is the poster child for, for Huntworth right now. I mean, he's taken it all over the world uh, and hunted, you know, sheep in the craziest places known to mankind. And and I'll, you know, ask him when I'm talking to him, like, you know, did that not, did you have it rip or not hold up or anything like that? And 
nope. You know, I mean, the stuff's holding up. Uh, so we're we're really elevating everything about that brand from marketing and branding to the quality of the garment. And that's, I don't, I've worked with a lot of brands, dozens and dozens and dozens of brands. And I can honestly tell you, Huntworth is one of the rare brands that when Adam calls Karen and says, you know, I really think you should tweak this over here. She's like, awesome. We'll think about doing that. Most of the brands that I've worked with, like when you when you make a suggestion or put maybe a, their widget down, I mean, that's like calling their kid ugly, right? I mean, they just don't take to it well. And Huntworth listens. And I'm sure you've experienced that firsthand. Oh, three or four times I've been like, Karen will call me and say, hey, do you have a minute? Like, yes. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to put you on the phone with Nicole because we're trying to figure out this po- these pockets or like this thing you were telling me about. Like, tell her what you want. Like, tell her exactly what you're telling me because I don't understand. Like, it's just yeah. that to me is like invaluable. Like, you know, there's a lot of things where, you know, you, a company says, oh, you want to do this or do that. And then you never hear from them again. It's just transactional or, or whatever. And this is like, you know, I'm, I've got some prototype bibs or whatever. Um, you know, she's sending me things to look at these drawings and stuff like that. And it's like, that makes you feel like they're actually they're listening. The yeah, exactly. And they have, and they have in-house designers. A lot of the brands today are farming a lot of that out. And I mean, the, they have a clothing team there that's designing their clothing. They're right down the hall. You know what I mean? Like, so you call them in the meeting and you're, you know, discussing that with them, you know, so they are different than a lot of the brands out there. So as they continue to innovate and everything, and, you know, since you are the self-proclaimed poster (laughs) child for, for heat boost and, you know, they've heard me talk about, I've been using it. Um, What is the, the big deal with, with heat boost and is it lipstick on a pig to use your terms? Um, absolutely not. Now I'll be the first to admit that when they called and told me they were kind of going down this road, you know, I hear a lot of things over the course of a year and, you know, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. Um, but when they, when I experienced the technology to kind of go back to what I said earlier, it's kind of that aha moment. And, uh, the numbers they put to it is it's up to 30% warmer, you know, than a, than a garment without, graphene technology which is what it is it's graphene technology which is you know a coating put on put on the fabric and it just helps retain heat you know um the the yarn or the you know however you want to describe the sewing process of that and the um thread being used that graphene thread it just retains heat you know and like like you and i were talking you just have that aha moment the first time i really tested it uh, as I have a cottage in northern Michigan where it gets, you know, 20 below zero. And it's not made for ice fishing. I'm not here to tell you it's made for ice fishing. But I thought, you know, I had some prototypes. I'll try it, um, ice fishing. And you just stayed warmer. And when you put those gloves on, I put the gloves on every day this time of year. You know, when I'm out, I have two mules. I'm feeding the mules or putting wood in the wood stove. I'm wearing those gloves. And within a minute of having them on your hand, you can just feel that heat. And there's, you know, science to back it up without the bulk. That's the big thing, right? Like there's lots of warm clothes out there. You know, we're, we're not telling you there's not warmer things, but to have the warmth without the bulk, that is a game changer. And that way, that's what heat boost does. 
Yeah, and you know, we talked about it earlier a little bit, but it's it's really I don't want to say I don't know how to say it, like sneaky because the clothes aren't bulky. So you like for me, like I'll put on the pants and not the jacket, and I'll be like, okay, well, I'm just going to wear these out there, and I'll have you know a pair of like the like a base layer and then like a pair of sweatpants on or something. And then I'll put those pants on and it's too much to walk out in. Um, and you can't walk out in the jacket. And I don't know like where, what the temperature would have to be for it to be okay to wear that stuff out. Um, but when we were down at the mobile hunters expo was the first time that I actually got to, to see it. And I think that might've been the first time they actually showed it off to like the public, the public. And I mean, you put it on and it takes about, it doesn't take a minute. It's like 30 seconds and you can just feel it. It's, it's warmer and it's, it's almost like it's collecting your body heat and just kind of holding it there. And, and for me, the, the main example that I use is the, the jacket. If you're a saddle hunter, it's perfect because it has the, the breast pockets. So you can put your hands in there they're they're lined with that so if you don't like to wear gloves you can put your hands in there you can put a hand warmer in there too and that heats up the whole jacket because it collects that heat too which i found out um (laughs) but um but that like if you put your hands in there and they get warm then you're out messing with your bow or your tether doing whatever playing on your phone when you put your hands back in the pockets they're still warm like your hands were still in there it just kind of retains the heat and it's 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 really impressive, um, which you know a lot of times sounds like a lot of hype, and you know, oh yeah, you guys are you got yeah, it. We for just free got done and, talking about how I'm the marketing guy, right? The yeah. branded guy. So yeah, I mean, I could see how the listener is going to go like, yeah, that that's their job. You know, he's he's paid by Huntworth. Um, I, I guess the the easiest way to describe it, you're going to be able to stay in the woods longer. And we all know, I mean, that's the game changing moment. You know, another one of my clients is redneck blinds. And I can't tell you how many people will tell redneck blinds, man, the reason I killed that buck was because I was able to stay warm in the cold weather, or I was able to hunt in the snowstorm or the rainstorm or whatever. The longer we can stay out in the field, you know, the better our odds are. I mean, it's just, that's just plain and simple, right? Well, that's what Huntworth does with this heat boost. It allows you to stay in the woods longer. So, you know, it's, it's really difficult to, uh, you know, you know, there, obviously there are some people that are going to hear this and they're going to check it out and they're just going to order, they're going to buy it. And there's been some great, like 30% off, uh, codes and all that stuff. You know, they just kind of keep coming through, coming through. Um, but is it available in stores anywhere or is this that only a direct consumer at this point? It is available both. Um, you know, obviously they're doing a lot of it online, but they're they're working with a lot of the retailers. Um, and a lot of the retailers are excited about it for next year, you know. Um, so the the longer it's out, the more places it's gonna be available. But obviously those discount codes and things are, you know, on on their website and buying it direct is probably the best way to get a deal. Yeah, but I'm just saying for people that, that want to try it out and want to see whether it's just I guess it depends. Yeah, I guess it depends on on uh, where you live and and because different retailers take a different lineup of Huntworth. You know, some will say, "Well, we're going to try that next year," right? And I think 2023 will be the year where um, 
you'll see it in a lot more retailers. So from the the Huntworth side, like if you were to pick out like your favorite items, because like I'm going to do like a video on this because I've had a whole year now of, of using it from scouting and turkey hunting all the way through into the into the cold. But like if you were to say like, your top three items of I'm a, of I'm a horrible guy to ask because <laughs> I because I'm constantly I mean they're sending me so many different things you know believe it or not my favorite thing to make is just a simple vest man and you probably have that vest I, mm-hmm. I'm not even sure what the name of that vest is that vest is my favorite thing I wear hunting I wear it speaking in front of crowds um you know I'm I'm constantly changing it out because I'm constantly testing I mean she just sent me some new heat boost stuff the other day that I haven't even pulled out of the box yet, you know. So I don't I have everything they have and and doubles of some of it. And I'm just constantly swapping things out. And so that it's kind of like people say that's me when I was working so closely with Matthews, you know, which one was your favorite bow? Well you were just you were constantly switching between things. It was hard to really be adamant. All I know is anytime I stick on any heat boost garment, you can instantly tell. You know, like you know you're here in Michigan. There was some snow on the ground for the rifle opener, you know, and, and uh, I had heat boost down for that because I, I, uh, we hunted in a redneck blind in the morning and in the evening we were back on the public ground and, and, uh, you know, I was wearing heat boost and none of it has failed me and none of it has let me down yet. That's for sure. So real quick, I've got the lighter heat boost because I, I, I didn't see the need for the heavier stuff. Uh, but can you tell us the difference between the two? um versions um one is quite a bit bulkier you know and that that one i haven't used a lot because i don't like the bulk being a bow hunter i would describe their bulkier version as is more of a you know the gun hunters the gun hunters stuff versus bow hunters in my in my opinion you know um it just seems like most of us who are bow hunters we want that thinner stuff you know what i mean we just and I think in the end, that's why heat boost will be popular with the bow hunter because if you are a late season guy, you can still wear that thinner, thinner stuff and and stay warm. Yeah, and so the thinner stuff is the Saskatoon version. That's that's what I've got. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I, I chose it so for the, that reason. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would think that's what most bow hunters are going to want to s- stick with. Okay. Anything else you want to talk about with the heat boost stuff? Because I think. No, you know, I, I don't, as I've said to you before, I don't, we don't need this to be like a, you know, hard boat, sell, yeah. hard sell and, and maybe it has been a little too hard already, but, um, I, I think here's the other thing that I'll challenge everyone with. If you try Huntworth, anything they make, including the heat boost and, and you're not satisfied, I mean, they, they have an awesome return policy and, and we were talking about that the other day. Some, some guy was, you know, thought he was getting one thing, got another and he ordered it and they were returning it and. I mean, if, if you're unhappy, return it, you know, because a lot of people are buying stuff online. You might not have a retailer near you. And, uh, so it's, it's hard to always know when you're clicking that button online, oh man, this is a lot of money to spend. So they do have a good return policy. Okay. We'll switch gears here a little bit, just because, like I said, I promised my, uh, my Patreons, we'd, we'd talk about it. So Tracy hunts. Okay. Probably in a way that none of you have ever heard of um, for oh, turkeys. <laughs> so hunting turkeys with dogs, 
how does that even enter into your well for first off it's only it's only legal in the fall okay so it's not a not a spring sport uh, and what i tell people is i've hunted uh big game and i don't know 34 or 35 different states you know back when i was writing i averaged six or seven states a year one of my favorite things to do is turkey hunt with dogs you're doing it in the fall uh, those dogs are trained to break up a flock of turkeys so you're dumping them in the woods like a coon dog and they're going out there and sniffing out the turkeys and when they find them they break them up they're barking at them so you hear the dog barking at the turkeys and the turkeys fly all away in a million different directions you go sit down and call them back in and that's what happens so when a flock of turkeys a lot of people might not realize this if if you have you know three or more turkeys and they get separated from one another because a coyote come running up their hind end and they fly away Usually within a few hours, they're going to reunite at the very spot they were broken up from. And that's what the dog is trained to do is break those birds up. So then like from that perspective, like the, is it like a, the dog, like a duck hunting dog where now he's just sits there next to you until the turkeys come back in. So he, he crawls inside a bag or, or, um, you know, we'll lay a Huntworth coat over the top of them is really what I do now is just got a thin, you know, Huntworth early season jacket I lay over the top of them. And uh, they lay there till the gun goes off. And that's probably the toughest part of the training is teaching them to sit still till the gun goes off. Because the last two, three minutes before you pull the trigger, I mean, they can hear that turkey coming in, right? They can hear their feet and the leaves. They can hear you calling. And the dog can also hear that turkey calling back. And the longer the tr- the dog is in the game, they know what that whole process is, right? So they're super excited, and they ha- and you've got to get them to just sit there still, you know. And and that's a well trained dog will do that. They'll even allow you to move. There's been times where, in fact, I I filmed an episode of Nick's Wild Ride. You can get online and watch an episode that we did on turkey hunting with dogs. And you know, I had to move all around that tree. Luckily, the dog I had with me for that hunt, for that reason, because we were on film, right? I wanted my best dog. I mean, I could move 100 yards away if I needed to, and she would have just stayed there under that bag, knowing that until dad pulls that coat off me, I'm not moving. And on that particular hunt, I just had to wiggle around the tree and move my body a little bit to get the shot. Some of my younger dogs, the moment you're wiggling or moving, they're out of there, man. It's time to go. So... Where did you come across that or how did you get into it? It doesn't, because like I said, it's not it's, top of mind. No, it's anyone. it's a it's a very old sport, believe it or not. Uh, 1800s, early 1900s, it was actually a, a hunting thing that the rich and wealthy did. It was, I, when I wrote about it for magazines, including the National Wild Turkey Federation, I, I would always say it was a sport of kings and queens. Like the people who did it were wealthy. If you had a turkey dog, you were wealthy. And most of those people bred the dogs in a hush-hush way, so they didn't give them away to their buddies. They kept the whole litter themselves, and it's it, it's been around a lot. <coughs> excuse me, lot longer than spring hunting ever was. You know, spring hunting became popular in the 1960s. It's way easier, to be honest with you. And I was introduced to it by um, a well-known writer. Maybe some of you who are old enough to remember this name. His name is Jim Casada. I used to be the editor of Turkey and Turkey Hunting, also one of the editors of Trapper and Predator Caller. Maybe some of you uh, recognize that that magazine. Uh, And he introduced me to a guy by the name of Parker Wheaton. 
And Parker Wheaton was from South Carolina and made wing bone. He was a famous wing bone turkey call maker. Like one of his wing bones was $1,000 of all things. And uh, I flew down there to interview him for an article I did for the NWTF. And he was a turkey hunter with dogs. And, and I decided when I got home, hey, I'm, I'm going to dive into this thing. And, and I've had them ever since. I've had, I don't know, four or five turkey dogs. I have three of them right now. And so what kind of dog is a turkey dog? Uh, they're called Appalachian turkey dogs. And uh, most of them are bred in Virginia. Uh, Virginia is kind of a big hub for dogs. Deer hunting with dogs is still eager there. You you had mentioned that earlier that you have some haters. Uh, I get it. I get why people hate them, but that is the hub of turkey dogs, and uh, most of my dogs are from there. I have one mutt from from uh, Sand Lake, Michigan, that wasn't a turkey dog. He was half plot hound, half setter. Um, I'm probably going to use him as a stud here pretty soon. A lot of them have hound and setter in them. You know, that's kind of. Uh, Kind of the none of them are purebred, obviously. They're they're a bunch of mutts, but they're mutts bred with turkey hunting in mind. And so there's the difference. Like every breeder that I've gotten my turkey dogs from, besides that one, are old timers who've been breeding turkey dogs for fifty plus years. And what makes a good turkey dog? I mean, like you know, what what is it? Is it temperament? Is it their ability to like listen to their owner? You know, like. I would say uh, two things come to mind. The first one being they got to bark on the break. An old timer once told me, if your dog doesn't bark on the break, you don't have a turkey dog. And, and what that means is, you know, if your dog is two, three, four hundred yards away from you and he breaks a flock of turkeys, you're not going to know unless he's talking to you. Right. So if he goes in silent and breaks that flock, you're not you don't, you don't know. You don't know what's going on. Now, with modern day GPSs, it is a little easier. Right. To tell. Um, but even with them, I don't always know unless I have a dog that barks. So a dog that barks on the break is a must. And a dog that just thinks about turkeys nonstop and doesn't chase other things. Like my dogs, if they bark in the woods, I can bet the farm they're barking at a turkey. They don't bark at deer. They're not barking at squirrels. They're not barking at raccoons. They're barking at turkeys. And that's just partially bred into them and partially you know what's rewarded right is that they know they know dad wants turkeys like I, I got a dog upstairs right now if i go upstairs and say turkey if i just say the word turkey she's gonna tear the house down <laughs> you know trying to get outside okay i mean she knows what a turkey is <laughs> <laughs> so uh from from that side of it if people want more information like on that what resources are out there for like for someone who's like, I love turkey hunting and I would don't turkey hunt yeah. in the fall. I love dogs. Like, yeah, I get people reach out to me every once in a while. They'll either watch that episode or I've been on uh, the hunting dog podcast and a couple others talking about turkey dogs, but probably the best resource for information is a website simply called turkeydog.org. And that's a guy who he just loves turkey hunting with dogs. He started an organization it's like 10 bucks of a year to be a member and it's all about turkey dogs. It just still seems crazy to me. So you said like it's legal in a bunch of states, like what states is it still legal in? Oh, there's several dozen. I mean, it's over 20, I believe. Uh, but the ones that I have hunted, um, let's see, I've hunted Michigan, Wisconsin, Nebraska, 
Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, trying to think what other ones that, that I've been to. Uh, Tennessee allows it. Kentucky allows it. Um, Virginia, obviously. So, I mean, there, there's a bunch of them that allow it, um, you know. So, obviously, <laughs> here in Michigan. So Yeah, that's wild. Just like I said, because I, I mentioned it and they – piqued some interest i'm like we, we got to bring that up just for the sake of uh, completeness like that's just a crazy thing and 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 again like you know with the huntworth and being able to talk to people who you know are that, that listen and then dealing with you who someone who actually hunts and has gone out and, and done the things and and kind of lived the same lifestyle um it's much better than you know just a guy behind a computer right oh yeah I've, I've tested you know huntworth on you know elk hunts out west and turkey hunts and deer hunts and everything in between you know like it's it's what i do uh we are coming at a time unfortunately where there's more and more pencil pushers in this industry um but uh there's still a lot of us who are who have been there done that so to speak so from the Huntworth side, if somebody's got questions or anything like that, what's the best resource? Like, who do they reach out to um, if they want to know about something specifically or, or or whatever? I mean, they can they can obviously call and talk to customer service. Uh, they can ask questions on social media. Um, those are go to the website. We have a one thing that Huntworth does a tremendous job at um, that I'm intricately involved in every year is we shoot. I don't know, 10 to 15 videos, maybe sometimes more on products and features and the difference between this and that. And you can find all those videos on their website, uh, the, kind of describing a lot of those features. We film all those right here in West Michigan uh, with a with a local video crew out of Grand Haven. And, uh, you know, we can answer, those videos can answer a lot of your questions. In fact, I mean, I hear your pretty face is coming <laughs> along for the ride next week for a for a photo shoot we're doing. So um, there's a lot of uh, West Michigan influence in the Huntworth brand, that's for sure. But a lot of videos on YouTube. And, and I challenge everyone to just type in a Huntworth gear review on YouTube. There's a lot of reviews. Yes, a lot of them are from pro staffers that, you know, we're working with. But a lot of those guys don't start as pro staffers just as you didn't you know if i find someone that i really like and i can tell they're him and han but i feel like they have an audience that we need to get in front of i'll just send them the gear and very rarely after they test the gear don't do they come back and say i don't want to do anything with this all of them have been pleasantly surprised with the quality yeah and like i say i i hunted with that stuff all last year and like I think we did the photo shoot last year at the same time and I got the clothes in December and hunted all the way through till January 1st and I didn't wear anything else but that. And I would like literally was crawling through CRP fields, like on my hand, on my stomach in this clothes, you know, and it was, it was a, it was a, you know, it was a win-win for me because it was like, well, if I do wreck it, I'll I'll know, but I didn't pay anything for these things, and I mean, they'd look just like brand new. <laughs> the, to this so let day. me so let me turn the tables from a marketing perspective. Maybe I can learn something here. 
So you were you were a little gun shy first, right? When I when I said, "Hey, you know, what do you think about working with us a little bit?" And, uh, is it the price point that people just go, "Ah, there's no way this could be any good for, you know, one ninety nine." Well, I, I think so. I think I think the the problem is is that you know I'm I'm frugal too, but I like the idea of value. And like, that's where I see it now as, as a value. But at the same time, it's like everybody that's out there, that's a hunter, unless you're like one of these have to look cool, have to have everything has been, that's 50% of them though. But But yeah, I get what you're saying. But you've been burned by buying something at three quarters of the price or half price and thinking that you're going to get something, you know what I mean? Like you, you're, you're chasing value, but very rarely do you get, does that, does it deliver? Right. Does it measure up? Yeah. And, and that's the thing is like, there is absolutely zero chance, zero chance that I would ever buy a Sitka fanatic jacket just because of my, like, I, there's no way I'm going to spend $700 or on a jacket or $500 on a jacket. There's no way. And then so to be like, okay, well, here's a jacket that's $250. And maybe there's a, you know, you can get the sale or the pro staff deal or, or whatever. And so you can get a similar jacket for $400 and it's like, oh, you know, that, that to me is like, and without like being able to handle it, being able to see it and be able to like, uh, kind of like put it through the paces. Uh, because like I say, everybody that's ever hunted in any capacity, I guess the way that, that most of the guys that I surround myself do, you've just completely destroyed gear. Like I'm so tough on gear because I don't take care of it because I put it through like the worst conditions, like known to man. Like how many times has I taken my bow out of my case from the last hunt and it's frozen in there or like, you know, it's just because I'm like, John hates me. He, he hates the way when I bring him my bow and say, Hey, I need you to tune this up or I need a new string. string He's like, (laughs) "What, what did you do to this thing? And I'm like, I hunted. 50 sits this year. Like I'm not polishing it up every single time I'm done with it. You know, I wad it up and throw the clothes in the back of the truck and you know, they're full of stick tights and mud and all sorts of other stuff. And I've been burned a lot of times on that by buying something that's, you know, kind of okay, you know? And, and I think that that's, that's where the trepidation lies. Um, and for me, like, just like you said, like, I haven't ripped anything. Nothing is, I haven't torn any seams. I haven't, I think I busted some stitching in one of the knees. Like, I got it caught on one of my sticks, like, coming down in the dark or something like that. And it just ripped yeah, a couple yeah, I've, I've had a couple, you know, here's an interesting thing. Like, early on, I had a button come off something or a zipper. And, like, the first year I worked for them. And I had a couple pro staffers that I had sent stuff to said the same thing. They fixed all that. You know what I mean? Like, oh man, next generation, we're going to tweak this or that. You know, yeah. I mean that, and, uh, and they do those things. 
But I think for me, I think that that kind of sums it up. I mean, it's like, it's. We're all doubting Thomas's a little bit, I think. And that's what all brands are trying to overcome is to convince you that they are real. And, but unfortunately today there's so much smoke and mirrors and so much lipstick on a pig. doesn't matter if it's a bow or a gun or anything, you know, um, we're, we just don't trust anyone anymore. And that is what makes marketing harder. You know, people trust their buddies. And that's how I try to win over a lot of people, regardless of what brand I'm working with is we try to get to people who, who are hardcore. Cause I know if I can convince you, you're going to, convince your buddies they're going to see you wearing it in a year later whether that's the bow or the saddle or whatever and go man i've i've beat the crap out of this and i'm still using it yeah those are the kind of brands i say no to some brands like "Ah, i just don't think this is a good fit and um you know i try to stick with brands that really do stand behind the products well you know and i i appreciate it and i appreciate you coming on today and taking the time and and everything and and like i said i I think I think people will definitely take something away from this. So, uh, like I say, I, I really do appreciate you coming on hey, no and, problem. and hanging out with us for an hour or so. So get your get your lipstick ready for the photo shoot. Now <laughs> I get your <laughs> yes, sir. Well, all right, Tracy. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Bye bye.